Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, I'm your host, Sean McCain. I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and Sacred Radio Show. My show is created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow the Paranormal and Sacred on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world and translate into many different languages. Uh, the call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744. And the Paranormal is Sacred airs every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And this show, I can answer questions in order in chat, and also you may call in with your questions and speak with our guest tonight. Any buzzkillers in chat or on the phone will be kicked out. You know, I often say that. I have a copy of your number and your information, so I'll call you and bug you just like you bug me. So play nice. Anyway. I do have a serious uh, something to report. Is, uh, please keep our dear friend, Dr. John Elias, uh, in your prayers. You know, he had a serious surgery and he got pneumonia, and now he's on life support. And uh, we're all pretty horrified and scared, so please keep him in your prayers. He's a, he's a young man. He was, uh, he, of course, like I said, he has his doctorate, and then he was also going for... Um, his law degree, and uh, then he has to do this. He's a very, very, very good friend, a good friend of the show, and uh, please keep him in your prayers. And then just a couple of so we love you, John. Take care. Come back to us real quick. Okay, so I have a couple of announcements. Uh, through our national event featuring researcher Grant Cameron is going to come in up fast, September 20th, and it's going to be at Dunnington Beach. Uh, location. It's going to be awesome. Uh, wait a minute. No, it's not. It's going to be, sorry, I'm sorry, everybody. I didn't get everything in this notice. So uh, it'll be at the Culver City location, the usual site. And uh, go to www.serialinternational.com for more uh, events, information, and it's only 15 bucks at the door. And uh, September, we support group will be in Huntington Beach. That's the and anyway, we're revving up for you know the whole er, for the whole big holiday thing already. Serial International famous and infamous holiday party aboard the Haunted Queen Mary in Long Beach, and that'll be December 13th. And they changed the time a little later, which is better for me. So it's 7 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. It's on the Queen Mary. So please contact Yvonne Smith about your reservations. The dinner has gone up a little as they have charged higher prices. Now it's under new management. So now it's 60 bucks each, pretty steep, but I'm going, okay? It's only once a year. And there's a gift exchange for at least to have a value of 20 bucks each. And if you bring a gift, you get a gift. And it is the party of the year. And sometimes they go looking around the, the uh, ship. It's you know, haunted. I don't go because it is haunted, and it's really scary. But anyway... Because uh, I went aboard one time and uh, had a weird experience with my son. But this week, our guest Jackie Barrett took ill at the last minute and could not make the show. And I'm very uh, sorry. 
So what we're going to do, uh, Adrian Rudnick is going to join me in a minute, and we're going to discuss the Amityville Horror, uh, Horror House and the Lutzes and the whole thing that happened over there. So we're, we've been researching, and we're going to discuss it. And next week, guess what? Our, our guest will be Daryl Sims from Alien Hunters. So he's quite a character and an awesome guy, and uh, we're looking forward to that for next week. And so... Uh, I wish uh, everybody the best, and I wish Jackie Barrett uh, uh, to recover soon. And uh, everybody seems to be getting ill and things like that, so let's keep us in our prayers and uh, hopes for the best. So I'm welcoming Adrian. I'm welcoming you on the air right now. How you doing, hello, Adrian? Hello, hello. Good evening. Good evening. So happy How are to you be doing? I'm doing good. I'm glad Sorry you joined me at the last minute. Yeah, so hopefully, hopefully I can help out. We can shoot the breeze, talk about the Amityville Horror, and then, um, well, then whatever we want to talk about, I guess. People can call in and uh, just see where the wind takes us, as it were. Yeah, so our call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744. And as a, a little intro, I do have, uh, I'm going to tell a little bit about the story and then we'll just start discussing it. If you want to call in and talk about if you know anything about it or anything, I did contact a couple of the people, including two of the residents that lived in the house. That have One of them had changed their names, but it's the Lutz's uh, kids. And uh, anyway, they might be calling them too. So uh, I'm going to read the little intro I have here. In December of 1975, Georgia and Kathy Lutz and the three children moved into one, one, two. Ocean Avenue, and a large Dutch colonial house in Amityville, a suburban neighborhood located on the south shore of Long Island, New York. Thirteen months before the Lutzes moved in, Ronald DeFeo, I didn't know it was 13 months, before the Lutzes moved in, Ronald DeFeo Jr. had shot and killed six members of his family at the house. After 28 days, the Lutzes left the house, claiming they had been terrorized by paranormal phenomena while living there. The house at 11-2, Ocean Avenue remained empty for 13 months after the DeFeo murders. In December 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz, like, am I reading it over and over and over again anyway, they said they bought it for the bargain price of $80,000. you imagine that? Wow. The six-bedroom six house was built Dutch Colonial, and it has that, that gambler roof is now famous to all of us, and a swimming pool and a boathouse, and it's located on a canal. And they were married, George and Kathy. Uh, we were married in 19, July 1975, and each had their own homes but wanted to start fresh with a new property. So Kathy had three kids from a previous marriage, Daniel, Christopher. So I did try to contact Daniel and Christopher tonight, so one of them may or may not be calling in. And then Missy, five. They also owned a cross-speed Labrador named Harry, and during their first inspection of the house, the real estate broker told them about the DeFeo murders and asked if this would affect their decision. After discussing the matter, they decided, no problem. So what do you think so far? Interesting. <laughs> Say the no least. problem. Well, I killed six people last year, and I have no problem moving into this house. To me, that was the first red flag. Well, I mean, the, the, I think it's interesting how, I mean, right be, it's like when things happen, it's just when traumatic things happen, how they leave a, it's like, for of a better word, an ontological or metaphysical imprint in a place. Because if you recall, there's um, there were murders that happened before they got the house. I don't know if you recall that. 
And so yeah. um, I think what six people got murdered. Well, yeah. The um, what it was is that uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed six members of his family, his parents and his uh, siblings. This was back and, in like. Uh, this is seventy-five. Seventy-five, right? Yeah, and, and then um, right after that. That's where George, George and Kathy Lutz, that's when they got the house. But were they aware that there was a murder there? Do you know? Yeah. They, yes, they were. They, yes, they did know. Wow. Um, but they had, you know, they were actually, you know, getting together. They both had owned houses, but they wanted to pool their house. And uh, they had, you know, a mixed family getting all the kids together. And uh, they just wanted to get the house. And uh, they got it. And actually... They also uh, they moved in, it says here, December 19, 1975, and much of the DeFeo family furniture was still in the house, and it was included for $400 as part of the deal. And right. uh, so a friend of George Lutz learned that the history of the house insisted it being blessed. So at this time, George was a non-practicing Methodist and had no experience. So Caskey was also a non-practicing Catholic and explained, you know, the process of the priest coming and blessing the house and everything. And um, and then George knew a Catholic priest named Father Ray who agreed to carry out the house blessing. So uh, anyway, he changed his name to Father Mancuso, so, so he had privacy further on. So anyway, so that's the part, the initial part of what was going on. This father, Mancuso, was a lawyer and judge of the Catholic Court and psychotherapist and lived at the Sacred Heart Rectory. And he arrived to perform the blessing while George and Kathy were unpacking their belongings in the afternoon of December 8, 1975. You know, I can just see this played out in the movie. I don't know if you recall the Amnesia Horror uh, movie, but yeah. um, I could just see the, the father coming in as if everybody's casually packing and unpacking and, you know, straightening up the house. And uh, then... The book came out on that on 77, I think, right? I think it was in 77 the book came out, and the movie came out later. Yeah, do you have, I have that information, too. Okay. And uh, so, uh, okay, I'm going to tell you about this part. So then George and Kathy were unpacking their belongings, and, they, and then the priest went into the building to carry out the rites. When he flipped the first holy water and began to pray... He heard a masculine voice. This is the famous thing that scared the hell out of me. He heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. While leaving the house, Father Mancuso did not mention this incident to either George or Kathy. On December 24, 75, remember they're counting down the days because they weren't there that long. Anyway, Father Mancuso called George Lutz and advised him to stay out of the second floor room where he had heard the mysterious voice, the former bedroom of Mark and John Matthew DeFeo that Kathy planned to use in the sewing machine, but the call was cut short by static. Following this visit to the house, Father Mancuso allegedly developed a high fever and blisters on his hands, similar to stigmata. At first, George and Kathy experienced nothing unusual, talking about their experiences, simply reported as if they were each living in a different house. I guess that's when the separation began, is right away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had all sorts of stuff happening when I was doing my um, research, just bizarre stuff. I mean, glowing eyes. Uh, um, their kids started sleeping on their stomachs, just like the 
dead bodies that were found. Um, and there was it their five-year-old daughter. Um, she had an imaginary friend called, what's she named, Jody or something. And then it was supposedly like a pig-like sort of creature with glowing red eyes, so like a demonic. Yeah, this is like this theme about this pig and demons. I think that's a weird sort of thing. What do you think that the image of the pig, why is that so important? Because he well, seems to be sprinkled throughout the Well, it's horrible because, you know, in the Bible, um, the, uh, uh, Jesus uh, threw out a bunch of, of demons out of this person had so many demons they just said they didn't want to die so uh, Jesus cast them into a herd of pigs and the pigs went crazy and ju- jumped off a cliff and it's just sort of a hideous uh, reference hmm. really but, but I'll tell you something uh, later if you remind me about my sister that has to do with this part but um, here's some of the facts of the case that I think have been kind of haunting Everybody, whoever seen the movie, whoever read the book or any of that, for instance, George would wake up around 3.15 every morning and he would go out to check the boathouse. Many people say they wake up at 3.15 every morning. Don't you think so? I'm sorry. I got this right, but I'm Have you sorry. heard people, that's okay. Have you heard that people, you know, wake up at 3.15 every morning? You know, they always say, oh, I wake up at 3.15. Every time I wake up at 3.15. So I think it's, the story that has actually seems to be possible. like also the time where like a lot of crazy stuff happens as far as you know paranormal kind of stuff. Haven't you noticed that like around the two or three o'clock time, that's when a lot of stuff happens. I don't know if that was your experience too. True, that's exactly when I wake up. It's two or three, and uh, then then the second uh, fact is the house was plagued by swarms of flies despite winter weather, and then. Kathy had vivid nightmares about the murders and discovered the order in which they occurred and the rooms in which they took place. The Lutz children also began sleeping up, as you said, on their stomachs in the same way the dead bodies in the pictures, oh gosh, were found. And then Kathy would feel a sensation of being embraced in a loving manner by unseen force. Hmm. And then another one is uh, George discovered small a small hidden room. This sounds very much like Ed, Ed, Ed Becker's story. Well, anyway, there was a small hidden room uh, about four or five by five feet behind shelving in the basement. The walls were painted red, and the room did not appear in the blueprints of the house. Because I noticed in the book True Haunting, they, they had a room, too, that was dedicated to some kind of bizarre... Uh, horrible thing, but then the room was known as the Red Room. The room had a profound effect on their dog, Harry, who refused to go near it and cowered as if sensing something ominous. Now, I never knew that that was true until really? reading these reports. I never knew. I knew that there was a little room, but I didn't know it was painted red. Right. And that it was, there was an obvious uh, purpose to the room. How strange. And, then and the thing, one of them had actually an experience where they were levitating off um, a couple of feet off the off the ground. I think it was. Where Kathy. were they at when this happened? I'm sorry. I haven't read that yet. Where where would this happen? I don't I don't remember exactly where, but it was supposedly she, okay. um, the wife Kathy received like um, on her chest received wealth caused by by some sort of force. 
Um, and at the same time, she was levitated a couple of feet off the air. I mean, there's just so many things that bizarre stuff that happened. Um, that'd be too bad to guess this name to illuminate what the heck is what's going on in that crazy house. It's just incredible the things that happen. Um, it is. And and one much. one piece of evidence that she, one of them, um, the wife Kathy, also she had like a. Um, Experience where she also had a like a loving embrace of source by some sort of yeah. invisible force. Um, so I thought that was out of all these horrors, she actually had one sort of a I guess a positive experience. Yeah, I was uh, saying that, but it was maybe uh, there's many different energies in the same house because it sounds like this has a bunch of things going on. You know, some evil spirits and maybe a loving spirit, I guess, but. Um, now, well, what did they do initially? I mean, um, do you recall once they realized something was going on? Did, um, they, they, that's what you were referring to. They called the their, their father Manusco. Yeah. Well, he tried to bless the house, and um, he they, uh, he had he was to trying leave. to like clean it out. Yeah, because the entity had told him to get out, so he got out, and then he actually he had the stigmata of blisters on his hands and he to warn the family and then uh you know i remember what i actually read the book and then i read the I saw the old movie a few times and you know he from then on was having you know terrible symptoms of being infected by this horrible uh spirit but of whatever that one was and then i guess uh, uh while tending to the fire I'm just to read you a few more facts. George and Kathy saw the image of a demon with half its head blown out, and it was burned into the soot in the back of the fireplace, which is way creepy. And yeah. then uh, in the early morning hours of Christmas Day, now this thing, this is what I'm about to tell you, is what scares me so much, and I hesitate to even read it. But it says, in the early hours of Christmas Day, 1975, George looks up at the window at, at the house after checking on the boathouse, which he always was doing, and he sees the pig standing behind Missy in her bedroom window, and he runs up to the room and finds her fast asleep with her small rocking chair slowly rocking back and forth. That wow. just uh, horrifies me, you know. It's, uh, and I want to tell you a little bit later after I... I wonder what happened to the guy that committed the murders. Do you know? I mean, I yeah, I, I don't do know. know. Yeah, I. Okay, I do know. So, what happened to him was uh, he was arrested and given six uh, consecutive uh, life terms. Uh, so six twenty-five year terms. And uh, he's still there. He had been... Okay, let me read about that. The sales okay. trial began October 14, 1975. He and his defense lawyer, William Weber, Weber mounted an affirmative defense of insanity with the sale claiming he killed his family in self-defense because he heard voices plotting against him. The insanity plea was supported by a psychiatrist for the defense, Daniel Schwartz. And a psychiatrist for prosecution, Dr. Harold Zoland, maintained although the DeFeo was an abuser of heroin LSD, uh-oh. He had an antisocial personality disorder and was aware of his actions at the time. And well, then the killings, um, 
occurred it just occurred to me when you were talking about the three AM stuff, that's when the killings occurred. That's uh, three exactly. uh, around three AM. That's right. And yeah. then on November twenty first, nineteen seventy five, DeFeo was found guilty six counts, second degree murder, and he is sentenced, you know, as I said, to six concurrent twenty five years of life. So he actually got married in there to find out what he was doing now and uh that girl divorced him. But wow. um you know, it's uh, it's one of those cases that, that people go over every little detail and memorize them and everything else. So there's a lot, of, a lot of followers of this case. And I'm like a medium follower of this case. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me read a... I, I just read you the one that scares me the most about this whole story was that one when the little girl was involved. But anyway, remind me about my sister later because it has to do with that. So George would take up the sound of the front door slamming. He would hear it. And then he would race downstairs to find the dog sleeping soundly at the front door. Nobody else heard it, although it was loud enough to wake the house. And then George would hear, this is called George Lutz, he would hear what he described, a German marching band tuning up or what sounded like a clock radio playing not quite on frequency. And then he went downstairs, the noise would stop. And then George realized that he bore a striking resemblance to Donald DeFeo Jr. Remember when he saw those pictures coming out? And they yeah. both looked alike and began drinking at the Witch's Brew where DeFeo once hang out. So he would go down to DeFeo, I think even went after he killed everybody, went down to that bar. And no. then George Lutz starts hanging around too and he looks just like the guy. It's just, just so strange and eerie. And then, um, let me see. Well, what's, what I find also strange and eerie is um, usually when there's like a, a, I mean, the, the classic thing you hear is whatever happened in a place to not people, if something terrible happened to a person in a place, then um, that person will, that got murdered or whatever would be haunting that area, that place, because, you know, they're still, um, they're, un, they're unhappy, you know, they were murdered and stuff, and so they would be haunting there. So, I mean, in his case, he killed what? His, his, the house he killed, what, his father, his mom? He, he and his father and mother. just two brothers and two mm-hmm. sisters. So what's interesting is the house is it, it wasn't haunted by his siblings or his parents, were they? There were all these, like, demons or pig heads or, or whatever. What about the siblings? Weren't there, like, instances of, of the siblings showing up? You know what I mean? Yes. Okay. I saw a picture. And That's what I think was, is odd. Why wouldn't like, they think the yeah. house? Well, I saw a picture, but I don't know if it was photoshopped or not. But it was of a little boy ghost in the hall, like staring down the hall, and it's a very famous picture. But I can't be sure with pictures, you know, if they're real or not. But oh, I, um, I don't know. Right. Okay. So. Then, okay, a couple more facts. Okay, the locks and doors and the windows in the house were damaged by unseen force. I guess everything just got wrecked. All the locks, doors, windows, jams, everything. And then uh, on January 1st, 76, they found cloven hoof prints attributed to enormous pig appeared on the snow outside the house. Scary. And then the green gelatin-like slime oozed on the walls of the hall and also from a keyhole hole of the playroom in the attic. And then uh, the 12-inch crucifix hung in the living room by Kathy, revolved until it was upside down and gave off a sour smell. 
I think this was a case of a, a demonic it seems, thing. It seems to be like all this sort of demonic sort of stuff. That yeah, there and, is. But where are the people that got murdered? Usually you would think they would be the ones that would be... I don't know uh, if it was... I mean. Maybe maybe things were there before, and because I guess uh, there was alcohol, and then um, the sales own using drugs, and I didn't know he was on heroin and LSD, but maybe that contributed to the overall sickness in the house, and there's some kind of possession going on anyway. You, say, right. you know, uh, it's... Uh, okay, I have about... Well, three more little things. Uh, George saw Kathy transform into an 80-year-old a woman of 90, and the hair wild and shocking white, and the face was a massive wrinkles and ugly line, and then her saliva was dripping. So that was just an impression that they saw. And then this, he would sing constantly away in her room. And when she left her room, she would stop singing, and upon returning, she would sing right where she left off. And then on one occasion, Kathy heard what sounded like a window being opened and closed in the sewing room, even though... She she was sure nobody was there. So anyway, after deciding that something's wrong with their house, they could not explain it rationally. George and Kathy Lux carried out their own blessing. So George carried a silver crucifix while both recited the Lord's Prayer. And while in the living room, George allegedly heard a chorus of voices asking them, "Will you stop?" But I guess uh, as a question, it was in chat. I guess the movie had had really uh, followed along the lines of uh, what was going on uh, in the house as close as they could. Right. <clears throat> a lot of this is what's been reported, and I I know I've seen the movie, and I know that it was in the movie too, and uh, they actually tried again uh, in mid January. Uh, in 76, after another attempt at the house blessing, they experienced what would turn out to be their final night. So they declined to say what everything that happened, but it was so horrible. That's the night they took off and ran away. Wow. I don't remember. Okay. I mean, do you remember how it all ended? I mean, um, yeah, they left. They just left. Yeah, and the they house? just left with everything behind. And okay, this is the ending. And after getting in touch with Father Mancuso, the Lutzes decided to take some belongings to stay at Kathy's mother's house nearby Deer Park, New York. I know where that is. Until they had sorted out the problems in the house. They claimed that the phenomena followed them there with the final scene of, now we're talking about the Amityville Horror book, Anson's okay. book describing greenish-black slime coming out up the staircase towards them. Can you imagine that going to uh, their mother's house and then the slime follows them over there? But... And now on January 14th, George and Kathy, with their three children and their dog, they left all their possessions, and the mover came, removed everything, and uh, that was it. No, and then after that, people have said that there wasn't uh, that much things going on in the house after the Lutzes left. I mean, it's bizarre all the way around. I don't know what else, you know, how else Yeah, it's bizarre all the way, all the way through. And uh, let's see. Okay, I'm going to, do you want me to to talk about um, what happened that night of the murders and who they, who they killed and all that? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, because I think that might shed some light. 
in my view at least, what started the the haunting, wouldn't you think? Yeah, how I think or were there or was uh, it'd be great to ask your guest like or was or were there stuff happening before beforehand and maybe this just added to it? I mean Right. It's interesting to know the well, whole history of the right house. Now. Okay, the calling number tonight is 619-924-9744. If you want to call in and shed some light, if you know anything about the story and want to add your ideas to the thing, um, you're welcome to uh, have the discussion. And yes, the, again, the house is still standing and people are living there. They've moved in and out, in and out. Uh, they've upgraded the house. It looks real nice, but uh, people don't stay there too long. Okay, so this is the this is the the bottom line story of what he did at around 6:30 p.m. Wednesday, November 13, 1974. 23-year-old Ron DeFeo, Jr. entered the Henry's Bar in Amityville, Long Island, New York, and declared, "You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot." DeFeo and a small group of people went to 1112 Ocean Avenue and was located near the bar and around found that the DeFeo's parents were indeed dead. One of the group, Joe Jesuit, made an emergency call to the Suffolk County Police. He searched the house and found that six members of the same family were dead in their beds. And now this was so highly, highly notorious, and there's a bunch of pictures. I did post uh, pictures on the site. And then the victims were Ronald DeFeo Sr. He was 43. And you think of these guys as older, but they weren't. His father was only 43. Louise DeFeo was 42, and their four children, gosh, she shot four children, Don. They, they seemed they, old. I know. I remember when all this was coming out in the 70s. To me, they seemed old because I was quite young then. <laughs> when I yeah. look at them, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what, what I mean. To me, old. they all seem old, but now they're younger than me. My God. Anyway, right. so it's Don 18, Allison 13, Mark 12, and John Matthew 9. All the victims had been shot with a 35 caliber lever action Marlin 33-6 rifle about 3 o'clock in the morning that day. And DeFeo's parents had both been shot twice, while children had all been killed with a single shot. And I, this is the first time, and when I was researching this, that I actually saw pictures of the uh, people that were dead. I feel so bad of those little kids, because people, I think, oh, they got shot like it was nothing. But you know what? They were shot horribly, blood all over the beds, and it's, it's, it's horrible. I you wonder know, if you had not, a bad trip. Because he was a he was a heroin and LSD abuser. That's what I mean. That. Maybe he's in a bad trip or something. Because if you look now, because before I don't think those pictures were made available, but they're available now because I find them. And there's these oh, little of the kids laying. Yeah, so the murders are laying in their beds, and it shows all the interiors of all the houses was way real 70s, you know, flower power stuff like that, right. and uh, a lot of ruffles. But then there's these poor little kids, you know, those young people, you know, they're just shot and they look horrible, you know. We have a call, so let me take this call and let me see who this is. And this is going to be area code 540, you're live with the paranormal and the sacred. Did you have a comment? Oh, uh, who's this? I'm sorry, are you there? Yeah, who is this? Oh, my name is Eddie. I'm calling from Virginia. Hi, Hi Eddie. How are you doing tonight? Oh, good, good. Um, I just kind of came came in the middle of the show. I, you know, it caught my eye, and you know, you were talking about the Amityville murders and stuff. I've always been fascinated uh, with that whole thing. Of course, 
All that took place, uh, what, 1974, wasn't it? 75. 75. It was year before, year, year before I was born. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, um, I was... I was born in September of 76, so it was like pretty much a year and two months, you know, after, well, a year after that, but anyway, nonetheless, I mean, I I grew up, you know, uh, watching the, the, you know, the movies and stuff like that, and I don't know, I just, I think they kind of uh, uh, went uh, on overkill on the movies, I don't think it was anywhere near remotely like it will really went down but you know that, that's just my take on it I you know I think that I think Hollywood kind of uh exaggerated it a little bit you know what do y'all think well I just want I, to make I, a, a, a apology correction um you were correct the murders did happen I just don't cross fact check the murders did happen in 74 the couple didn't move in till 75 right am I am I correct on this um I think so. Sure. You're right. You're Am I right. Correct? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's so just, what that's your, your comment? Uh-huh. Well, of oh, course, I mean, you know. You know what was creepy to me, Eddie? Are you there? What? What was creepy yeah, to me was those little those little things like uh, the door, the windows not opening. The of course that pig thing. I told you how scared I was of it, but. Uh, that's what what scared me is like the windows opening, then they're not opening, or doors locking behind somebody or shutting. All these little things that were in the movie were really scary to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I agree with scary, but I think, like I said, I think they they went a little bit over the top. You know, I mean, of course, you know, all that was written by you know from a you know written by somebody, you know, based upon the events, but how do we know that really happened, you know, what really happened? But uh, well, What do you think really happened? What's your opinion on it? How much? Honestly, I think, honestly, I think that I was just probably, probably on just dope, really heavy dope. I mean, I don't think the devil made him do anything, you know. I, I think, you know, he was... He was on drugs, or, you know, there's also been speculations that, you know, he didn't act alone, that there was other people involved, you know, I don't know. Oh, yeah, but, no, no, I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, he could have been on a bad trip, because, yeah, he, he's known to using heroin and LSD. What I'm asking is, the, when the couple moved in, the new couple that moved oh, in, mean, the uh, what, and how much of that do you think um, is real, as opposed Lutz to family? Hollywood confabulation? I think, I think the Lutz. I think the Lutz family, they just capitalized on the tragedy in the house. I think that's what it all boiled down to, you know, because hmm. they even said themselves they knew about they knew about the murders in the house, so it wasn't really no big, you know, wasn't like, you know, the house was put on the market and, you know, uh, nobody told them what happened there. They, they obviously knew, so they capitalized on it, you know. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that there's no kind of bad energy in that house because, there might be, you know, I don't know. I'm not, never been there, probably never will be, but, you know, I just think that uh, uh, Kathy and George Lutz made, you know, ill-gained profit off of uh, somebody's demise, and I just think that's disgusting. That's an interesting, yeah. I'm not an expert on, on this case, but um, that's an, so you're you're more skeptical. A good question, I guess, to cross-reference would be, is um, what about the kids? Have any of them, 
came out and said, yeah, you know, our parents did exaggerate. They didn't, is, is there any documentation that suggestive of that? I don't well, know. I mean, I've never seen anything. Well, yeah, there is because uh, the sons are actually on Facebook, and uh, I I have watched this uh, one of from one of the sons, Christopher Lutz, and they did an interview with him. There's Daniel Lutz, and they did interviews with them, and they're saying it was really horrible, and the, actually the the parents are, or things were horrible around there. Okay, so this uh, now we have Ed Decker. He's saying that uh, the movie was a movie and not a documentary, documentary. so that's that's what the son says. And then uh, he also claims that DeFeo's attorney worked with Lutz. I don't know what in man, what manner. So uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I want to thank you, Eddie, for calling in and giving your input. Yeah, Miss Barrett. Miss um, Barrett, you're a medium, right? No. This isn't Jackie Barrett, but Jackie Barrett had a migraine. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're, just, we're flying on we're flying on our own tonight. So thank you, Eddie. You take You're care. talking to Charlene McCain, the host. Oh, okay. Charlene McCain. Okay. Talk to you later, Eddie. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, so then we have another call. Let me see who this is. Area code. Eight four five. Welcome to the Paranormal Sacred. You're live. Uh, can I have your first name, please? Hi, my name's Anne Marie. Hi, Anne Marie. Hi. Um, I saw a documentary about the older DeFeo son. Uh, no, excuse me. Yeah, no, the older Lutz child. Is it Daniel? Danny Lutz? I think Danny you is were the just, older one. It's Danny, yeah. the older one. And he yeah. claimed, he claimed for many, many years that he was followed no matter where he went. They escaped to California. They went to their grandmother's residence or something like that. And they were followed for years, or he was followed for years by a demonic entity or something that followed him. And um, just until recently you know, just let him go. Um, but he believes yeah, that he was followed very, all the way out, out yes, west the, and the then into Arizona. The interview was extraordinary because he's also had some substance abuse problems and he's overcome them and he is determined to move on to a better life, you know, and uh, to watch well, him Well, he's absolutely, that. absolutely. I mean, he he hated the fact that, you know, he hated what happened to his family after, you know, uh, going into that house. Most of the manifestations happened to him. I remember him describing how he went into a room that was swarmed by these, I don't know, uh, you know, fly-type creature. And he literally spent all this time swatting, trying to kill the swarm, and he would kill the swarm, go downstairs, say, Mommy, Mommy, I I killed the swarm, and then she would go back into the room and there'd be nothing there. And then she, like, would turn on her children and say, you know, well, you know, obviously this isn't true. So she was under a cloak of denial, but a lot of things were happening to that poor man, and they continued to for a long, long, long time. So, I mean, I would I would tend to believe that, 
you know, the, those who are past are past now, but um, if you ever watch that, that documentary interview, it's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. What was it again? Say the name of it again. I don't recall the name of the interview, but it did, um, it was uh, from oh, Danny Lutz. Right I have it right here. So this is how you can find it, is go to www.newsday.com uh, entertainment and put in Daniel Lutz, and it's the real Hamneyville mm-hmm. story. And what he is, is saying is that, um, let's see, Daniel Lutz, he lived as, in a, as a nine-year-old, is publicly telling his story for the first time, is my Hamneyville Horror, and is independently producing a documentary, which I watched, and it was very uh, touching. He said mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, you know, then he was uh, he came in with a guy. Okay, Walter, 28, who grew up in Maryland, became so obsessed with his story as a youngster. He eventually launched the website AmityvilleFiles.com, so you can look up more information AmityvilleFiles.com. And he went mm-hmm. uh, through the site, and he was contacted by a friend, Daniel. And uh, now, yeah, Daniel is now UPS driver uh, living in Queens, and he's doing good. He's kind of okay. a roughneck, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, but he's but he's really doing good. And uh, George and Kathy Lutz are dead, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, his siblings just don't want to participate. And uh, he insists that the okay, so Daniel himself insists that the Amityville haunting was real and blames it largely on his stepfather, George Lutz, whom he loathed. Wow. He says that George dabbled in the occult and was capable of telekinesis. And Daniel also mm-hmm. claims that he himself was possessed by a spirit, a la the exorcist, complete with violently shaking bed. Wow. Yeah, I uh, mean, when I saw this, I, I, there's no doubt. You know, I just, I just felt like, wow, this, this was absolutely true. And, and the Amityville Horror story... I remember it being like one of the first real books that I read when I was maybe in sixth or seventh grade. And mm-hmm. it, it totally started my trek of seeking supernatural. So this one story, you know, really just has stayed with me my whole life. And I've always been, you know, just very interested uh, in the supernatural from reading the Amityville Horror Story, which is, I think we can agree, is, could be more fictional, but it could. It's based in in, in fact. Um, I don't know, but I just thought I'd call in. <laughs> How much? I really appreciate it. Where are you calling I'm sorry? from, Annie? I'm I'm calling from uh, Orange County, New York. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. What is your name again? Annie. Anne Marie. Hi, Anne Marie. Um. How much, how much do you think of it as um, actually happened um, in the book as opposed, I mean, r- really happened as opposed to what was presented in the book or, or Hollywood? Because it sounds like you're you're still kind of trying to decide how much, you know, to what degree it's true or not as far as. Well, what. I mean, if you compare other demonic hauntings with what is told in the book, phenomenon such as cold and hot places flies, um, you know, insects, birds, these kind of things have happened in other places. So where Daniel would say and where it describes in the book how there would be these swarms of flies, that's something that is very common. 
So I wouldn't doubt that. Um, slime and ooze, I've heard about that in other demonic hauntings as well, demonic manifestations, where you will get, um, you know, this kind of substance uh, that appears and then actually vanishes, um, kind of like, a, I don't know, uh, just this kind of um, goop or um, something that is vomited, for example, from somebody who's possessed. They will vomit up an object, and then it'll turn into the slime and basically disintegrate. So I've done a lot of reading uh, over the years and, and because of experiences I've had. So, I mean, I've, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think it was real. And, and from reading Jackie's book and from seeing the interview of Daniel, I don't think, and, and the um, testimony of, of the crew that was with Jackie, uh, there are people who, like, they were on the front stoop of the house, and then all of a sudden, you know, they would feel something or the machine would, would batteries would drain. These are common yeah. in, in, in hauntings, so... Um, well, my gut tells me it's real. I think mm-hmm. people also add their own negative stuff to make it worse. You know, it's like a mix of mm-hmm. things. It could be poltergeists, there could be hauntings, it could be evil spirits, it could be the devil. You know, it could be all of it. Mm-hmm. Stuff. You know, it could be mm-hmm. uh, a old soul that's been hanging around there since before the house was built. You know, we don't. We yeah, don't know and about and that. and it can attract other things as well. You know, we can exactly. all. Uh, if we are open to things, we can just attract what is nearby. We can attract, you know, and take home. As a matter of fact, I read an article just the other day about, uh, just a couple days ago, um, about Lorraine Warren, and Lorraine and Ed Warren, and what actually followed them home to Connecticut. Uh, they had, like, really, really horrible um, experiences. Um, I think Lorraine, Lorraine and Ed were both uh, kind of involved in this psychic vortex, this really negative energy vortex that kind of a- attacked them in their home. Um, I thought it was uh, very fascinating. And, you know, with all their movies coming out, The Conjuring and um, – was it The Conjuring? Did I get that right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And there might be one more movie based on their – experiences coming out soon uh that's no lie either you know that's no joke um it's some serious yeah, evil stuff another severe because uh, i had miss prone on uh the eldest daughter and interviewed her and it she said it's real and she was uh you know re- remarking and everything else i heard by the way her third book in that trilogy is out so uh House of Light, House of Darkness, I think that's the name of the title. Anyway, her third, third book in that trilogy is out. So, mm-hmm. anyway, Anne, you have been a great guest tonight. Thank and you. And I want to thank you for coming in and giving us your information because uh, I did find uh, a few more things uh, about the, uh, what happened afterwards. So I'm going to read a few little more notes. And I want to mm-hmm. thank you for calling in. You've been a big help tonight. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Okay, take care. Okay, Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. So, uh, okay, here's some more. So this is, I contacted a couple of these people, you know, but it was such short notice. 
I only had like a hour and a half to you know jam on this whole thing, but uh, doing, here's some more information. Doing great, and I like the diverse callers that we're getting. You know. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Me too. Thank you, they're, callers. They're really good, and everybody. Right? You know, we really, I know. The yeah, the open-minded and people who have yep. really interesting information. The interview about, um, was it Daniel? That's interesting. I didn't know about that. Did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did because I saw it. It's a, oh, I mean, you he did? He did it himself. He did it himself with the help of this, this uh, the other director. And uh, it was really interesting because he had what to is your feeling? You, what is your feeling when you were watching him, the body language? Like a, did, did it seem genuine to you? True. He was young. He seems to be uh, uh, very impacted by uh, him not liking his stepfather at all. I guess he was treated like crap. And the result, and then the evil, he said that George, his stepfather, George Deluxe, had uh, participated in occult activities while in the house and brought on a lot of this stuff. And, uh, yeah, so the call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744. We're discussing the Amityville house, the the horror of the murders of the DeFeo family, and also we're talking about the family that moved in after the Lutzes. So then um, I really uh, I actually left a message for this, this man, Acuna. On November 30th, 2000, Ronald DeFeo met with Rick Acuna, the author of The Night the Defiles Died, which was published in 20, 2002. According to Asuna, they spoke for about six hours, but in a letter to the radio show host, Lou Gentile, excuse me, failed Jr. denied giving Rick Asuna information that could be used in his book, claiming he immediately left the interview and did not speak to Asuna about anything as substantive. But the issue with DeFeo is he lied. He tried to blame the whole, all the murders. Okay, let me read it. According to Asuna, DeFeo Jr. claimed that he had committed the murders with his sister Dawn and two friends, Angie DeGeronario and Bobby Kelsey, out of desperation because his parents had plotted to kill him. Allegedly, where have we heard that excuse before? Anyway, allegedly, Ronald claimed that after a furious row with his father, he and his sister planned to kill their parents and that Don murdered the kids in order to eliminate them as witnesses. He said that he was enraged on discovering his sister's act. He's trying to blame it on his sister. She did not do that. He knocked her unconscious and shot her, too. So he's actually trying to blame it on the victim, he shot. Police found traces of, of gunpowder on her nightgown, and uh, anyway, that she may have discharged, but that's not, I don't believe it. So anyway, however, at the trial, the, the ballistics expert, Alfred De La Pena, testified that unburned gunpowder was discharged from the muzzle of a weapon, indicating she was on proximity to the muzzle of the weapon when it was discharged, not that she fired the weapon. He reiterated this in the Annie Amityville documentary that was extensively discussed in Will Savine's Mentally Ill in Amityville. Savine had an expert evaluate Delpina's assessment, and the expert confirmed that he was correct. Moreover, the medical examiner found nothing to indicate Don was in a struggle. The bullet wound was only... See, that sh- to me, that shows uh, his self-centeredness. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. un- uh, unwilling to uh, be sorry for what he has done and uh, being a homicidal maniac and whatever else he was. Uh, it's really cold to... I, I, I really despise uh, people that, that do that, blame the, the dead, you know, somehow that they did the killing or 
they ask for it or whatever. I mean, it, it angers me, you know, so much. But um, so you don't think? Then, yeah. You don't think it's possible for um, an entity to take over a human body and make them do something? I do. Them? I do know that it's true. Yes, they can. Oh, I'm but, just trying to understand okay, your perspective. But, but, but you don't like this. it when people blame. Um, people blame. He blamed his dead sister. Oh, I see what you're saying, right. He's a liar. But anyway, Joe Nickel knows that. Given the frequency for which Ronald DeFeo has changed his story over the years, any new claims from him regarding the events that took place on the night of the murder should be approached with caution. So I actually don't, because he keeps changing his story, you know. Um, Anyway, I don't believe him anyway. So most of the claims made in Rick's Asuna's book were resourced out to Ronald DeFeo's ex-wife, Geraldine Gates. While well, in 1986, the interview on Newsday, she asserted she married DeFeo in 74. In Osuna's book, she alleged they were married in 7. In their 1993 divorce, so it makes it clear they met in 1985, married on 1989, and divorced in 93. So, you know, I think they were both of the, him and his wife were lying, but, okay, so this is, I want to get this book. So Rick Osuna's book is adapted to a docudrama entitled Shattered Hopes, the true story of Amityville Murder. The film, released December 16, 2011, was written, directed, and produced by Ryan Katzenbach and featuring narration. Anyway, with me and I'm, I'm friends with Katzenbach on Facebook and uh, also, um, I, you know, he's uh, doing this stuff and I wonder how he feels about it. So hopefully, I was hoping he would call in. But anyway, featuring narration by Ed Asner examines all aspects of the case and with a strong focus on the Vale family and events, events surrounding their murders. So, hmm. so from your from your perspective, you believe most of the stuff that's been described in the in the movies or the book actually happened, or do you think? Some, I mean, you don't believe it was exaggerated, then, right? Well, you know, some things are probably exaggerated, you know. Or uh, if you're in a, if you're making a movie, you've got to actually telescope in or out things that are happening in events. So that's going to actually change a lot of stuff just on the timeline. And uh, I think taking out, you know, exactly what I mean is taking, putting in the the most extreme parts of the whole thing is what keeps it interesting. You know, you remember that? I found that on movie? the internet it says. Um the father, Picaro, gave a, a online—I mean, an interview on camera. They think might have been only the only one um, in 1980 in the program um, in search of. I remember seeing that, just a glimpse of it in my mind. That that's when I, I think when I was first heard of it was on the in search of with Leonard Nimoy. Did you used to watch that program? Oh uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I remember watching that program. That's why I was, my first exposure to <laughs> UFOs and stuff was through that in search of and other stuff that, that oh, came really? out. Um, well, not the first, but one of the first. Yeah, because, I mean, no no program ever showed it then, you know, about UFOs and stuff. And um, that was a great program um, about it. I think that's what might have heard, heard about the Roswell, too. But, um, yeah, so that would be interesting, you know, if, if Father, you have these other witnesses that are testifying that, um, that are credible that are saying it's true that might give credence to like wow this probably maybe it did happen you know why why would yeah, a priest 
you know. Oh, he was, well, and then the the thing is, is well, like, okay, this is what I was thinking while you were saying that. I was thinking, you know how things look different to each person or sound different to each person? Like, let's say you have a sighting and you saw it on one side, somebody else saw it. I think they they also saw different things or uh, different entities presented different things to different people, and that's a good way to keep you confused and off your feet, you know. And uh, do, you, do you want me to tell you what happened with my sister? Yes, definitely. Okay. This is pretty horrible. So... Anyway, first, we, I lived in this house, and, and I actually put a picture of it online on Facebook that I was living in a haunted house, and I went and drove by, and I took a picture of it, and I put it on Facebook. So it is there, uh, and uh, it's in Old Torrance, and um, my sister, I think we had moved in, had been there about a year, and we were all kind of party people, and... Uh, me and my sister were getting bored one day and we were just uh, fooling around and she said, well, why don't we have a seance? And I went, well, you know, it was a, okay. It wasn't dark or anything. We just, just It was just a table. And so we actually cut up little papers and we were making like a, a, a temporary Ouija board. But as soon as we had, we turned over a little cup I don't advise anybody doing Ouija, okay? So nobody do it. It's it's not no, good at all. Ouija was in the seventies. Yeah, don't yeah, don't do Ouija's because uh, it's, it's now we know it's like opening up a portal, and then once you open it, you can't get rid of it. But anyway, that's what we were doing. We didn't know any better. I didn't feel good about doing it, but I was intrigued, so you know, I just did it. But just as we put our hands cup before it moved, before we could do anything or ask any question my sister started talking in another voice. Now, this was like just barely sat down onto the table, and this is what started happening. It was almost like whatever was there had been waiting a long time. I had a feeling that it would, was waiting since she was a teenager or something. It was just very odd. So this spirit started talking, with it, and she started sitting like a man. She relaxed back in the chair, and she, she had her legs display like a man and she started saying I said well who are you and I don't remember the name because I'm getting really scared talking about it but anyway she said uh, I miss this and I said you know what do you miss and then um, she was now he looked out the window and said I miss people watering the grass and smoking a cigarette and just simple stuff right it totally freaked me out. And I said, Who is ta- who's talking? You know, like that. And uh, he would never answer me, really, directly. He just kept saying how much he missed the simple life, you know, and being alive. And we got so freaked out, I called my, I, I said, wait, I said, leave my sister. And I started praying, and she came back. I mean, she came to herself in a regular voice but she could not move out of the chair. She weighed like a 1,000 pounds, and she was stuck to the chair. The chair was stuck to the floor. We couldn't move her. She couldn't move. Wow. So I called her boyfriend. I said, get over here. You have to help us. So she stood up when he got there because I think, you know, she was distracted for a minute and was able to stand up, but her feet were literally glued to the floor. She could not go. So I said, quick, take her down to the rectory and see a priest. That was what I said, and then that way she then she could not move. So 
So he picked her up and left the shoes behind on the floor, and he carried her down to the rectory. They uh, uh, and, and as they were at the rectory door, um, they were knocking and pounding to get in, and uh, they didn't want to open the door. And uh, but my sister just they kept pounding the door, and uh, they were standing outside the door, but. Uh, somebody came from inside and peered out at them, and it was like through a, I don't know, do you know those bottle glass kind of knobby door windows? You can still see, you know what I mean, who they are? Yeah. And had bars. But to her, she said she saw something so horrible. She said she almost didn't go in. And she saw this face's head was that of a pig. And she said the hair was like in cornrows and corkscrews on her head. And she screamed, and she didn't. She was scared to go in, and uh, so the boyfriend was pounding. So anyway, they got in there, and the priest was called, and he told her she was talking to him, and he was saying, "I I can't help you in all this," but then uh, she was feeling disheartened, and uh, I don't. She probably said she wasn't a Catholic, but anyway, um, he walked over to her, and he said, Let, "He said, my God bless you," and he hugged her. And that evil spirit, he felt, she said she felt like her back was breaking. And the hmm. spirit left, left out to her back. And uh, it never came back. But that's why I'm telling you folks, don't mess with this. Scary. Maybe it's the Ouija board? That started with a Ouija board. But when that pig thing, since this was maybe just right before this whole movie came out, this could have been early as uh, 75. Yeah. And... Uh, Anyway, I was going to, somebody did call in, area code 415. I don't know who you were, but call back. I was just getting ready to pick up. I wasn't going to keep talking. Just stand well, hold. Thanks for showing that. Oh. That was fascinating. Um, call in number 619-924-9744 tonight. Thank you. Okay, yeah, Sorry Adrian. It, that's Sorry about that. Yeah, that sounded like a, just a bizarre and scary. How did, how did your sister react to all that, I mean, later on when you were, even she now had, when you, now, my you sister had a lot of problems, a lot of a lot of uh, problems. Yeah, she had a lot of problems in her life, and uh, she finally, uh, oh, okay, she finally got, uh, uh, you know, sober and in recovery, and uh, you know, she's had a, a better, a great life. Uh, she has uh, two grandkids; she enjoys taking care of. You know, everything life's changed for her, but. She really made a total turnaround about 27 years ago, you know. But I never messed with that again because it's it's too powerful, especially when we started for it to jump on it that quick. You know, whatever it was, it's just like waiting. What do they have? You know, do spirits have eternity? I guess they do. They can wait forever for you to slip. Yeah. I find the whole thing. I find it fascinating. Yeah, I was girl almost in the 70s, and then with my friend Larry, um, in the 80s, we do it a few times. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. It's, it's, it's weird. Really weird. So, but a lot of people do claim it seems to, um, that it opens things up. Why would it take a Ouija board to open things up? That's what I don't get. What if you just think about it? That, you know what I mean? Doesn't that open I it up? I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know. I, um, I'm thinking about it. It plays a role, you know, in a, a couple. Then you can do it, 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 while you're doing it, you put yourself in that certain mindset that's required for it 
for... Well, oh, because um, when they first came out was a really long time ago. But when we were teenagers, like, me and my sisters are only a year apart. So, you know, let's say if I was 15, one was 14, one was 13, then one was 12. You know, there's a, like, we're all in a row. So whatever we were doing, we were all doing it. And it was the, the adolescence is just the worst time for anybody to mess with something like that. You know what I mean? Because they say poltergeist activity, you know, follows adolescence around. They live off the energy or whatever. Because we're, we're curious about, really curious, but at the same time we're really screwed up too. <laughs> exactly. For it, you know, um, emotions going up and down, all, all that puberty stuff that that goes on during that time, you know. And yeah. So, so we had some extraordinary... Uh, things that, that happened with that Ouija board. And, you know, it's uh, it's really just strange and scary, you know, and I don't miss with uh, all You should all try to do it on Christmas. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I'm you not doing it at all. <laughs> That'd be interesting to what happens if you do it on Christmas, certain holidays, you know. No, but, you know, we have a, a Halloween show we have to create coming up. Are you going to be busy Halloween? I don't know what I'm going to do on, on Halloween, but um, are you going to do like a, a, people can call in and show their stories? What do you, what do you have in mind? Uh, I'm going to have a Halloween show. Ooh, that sounds good. I know. So probably, have you know, if it come in, people tell us the stories, but also, you know, uh, anybody from the past shows that would like to tune in and part, part of the show, so... It just depends. I haven't formulated all of it uh, so far. Yeah, we can talk about it off there and see. Um, yeah. Off, yeah. So this Amityville Horror, does anybody want to call in? Give us your opinion. Well, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this, in this thing, but I, am, I have heard about it over the decades, and I think it's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, um, I just found out some more stuff about... Uh, uh, Daniel, uh, after 37 years, original Annie the Horror Child breaks the science about his experience in a haunted home. Now, this is uh, April 2013, and it is in his film, My Amityville Horror. I, you know I can't say documentary, right? So a documentary, documentary mm-hmm. film. Can't say mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm going to read you some, a little bit about what this is about. So after 37 years, one of the original Amityville Horror children, that's kind of horrible, has decided to finally break the silence regarding his experience in a legendary haunted home. Daniel Lutz, who was a 10-year-old boy on January 14, 1976, when the family fled from the house, still insists the family was menaced by spirits in the home. Daniel now blames... Okay, we already, he already says they said the same thing. So he blames his evil stepfather, George, and they're all passed away, so he can't answer for himself anymore. Anyway, so Daniel, deeply troubled by both his abusive father and a terrifying experience that Amityville left the home five years later after they fled and spent some time homeless living in the street. Estranged from his wife and two kids, he now lives in Queens, New York, where he works as a stonemason. His story would have likely remained secret had a friend not contacted his popular filmmaker, Eric Walter, about speaking with him about his experience. The filmmaker noted that Daniel still insists the story was substantially true. So this is this is straight from a kid that lived there. He said it was true. He told the filmmaker, I just wanted somebody to believe me, and it has been in my dreams my whole life. 
So then wow. it goes in to talk about the, the, the same thing about the house and about the DeFeos and everything else. And um, he said his father, okay, so that would go back to, um, to George Lutz. So his father had been involved in Satanism and magic even before they moved into, no, I didn't know this, into the quiet suburban neighborhood, the South Shore of Long in New York. He recalled That's the family's book shelves. That's what the son claims. He recalled the family's bookshelves were lined with books on occults and demonism. George's beliefs and practices triggered what was going on in the house. It was like a magic trick gone bad that you couldn't shut off. Even as a child, he realized there was something not right about that man, something not good. And Daniel says he knew something was off in the house within hours of moving in, taking boxes upstairs, he found his room filled with flies. Remember, that's the famous story. He slaughtered hundreds of them and went to fetch his mother. And when they returned to the room, to get room together, there was not a fly in sight. And that's when you say you start getting confused. And I think that's what the lower powers that, that move around these houses, they, uh, they want to uh, confuse the people inside and separate them. That's yeah. what they want to do. They want to isolate you, think you're crazy, you know you're crazy, and then sex the relationship and... You know, so all these, so he still recalls a family dog going crazy, nearly strangling itself with its leaves as the garage door shook and slammed up and down. So the dog was trying to get away and, and almost strangle itself. The entire family was standing there watching that garage door slam up and down and slam up and down. He recalls a kitchen window mysteriously slamming shut as his mother treated his injured hand, then watching as an invisible spirit slid a chair back and, back and sat down leaving impressions in the padded seat. That's just pretty serious. I mean, he says that the levitating beds, footboards, and headboards slamming into the ceiling were not imagined. Daniel remembers how he, during their 28-day stay, remember this is over like almost a month, that was it, they were gone. The family experienced cold spots in the house, odd smells of perfume permeating the air, the stink of, of excrement, and would disappear as, though, as fast as it would come. Jolting sounds, booms in the middle of the night, glowing eyes of a demonic. We already talked about that. And uh, clear bite marks that appeared on his father's ankles right before their eyes. No. I wouldn't have been able to stay 28 days. I would have been out there the next day. One bite mark, I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting okay. tidbit that I found. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's, but apparently... Um, George and Kathy, they did took a polygraph test, and evidently they did pass. Wow. So um, that's interesting. That's interesting. They both passed, according to what I found. Um, so that would be interesting to see the nature of how that was taken, but um, that's, that's, that can't be dismissed. No. Yeah. Oh, so have you had any personal experience with hauntings or anything like that which you thought was that? I grew up in a haunted house and alien interested house. Well, um, I've had just as much paranormal stuff as UFO stuff, but the UFO stuff is um, more pulled towards the UFO stuff because there just seems to be something very personal um, about right. that, um, but par- paranormal. Good God, um, 
I mean, the last, I've, I've had a lot of experience. I had the one that I told you about, I think, a few times on early, early 80s when I was a sophomore. I had a, what I consider to be an attempted body possession of me. I was getting ready to go to yeah. high school. Um, it was morning, and I went, went up to go to the bathroom, but um, somebody was already there. I think it was my dad, so I went back to bed, sat on the bed. It was, you know, it was broad daylight. Some dreams like 7.30 in the morning. And I felt like a cold chill in the room, like a little breeze, but it felt something really odd, you know. And I, I remember thinking, that's weird, you know. And, and it's like, whatever. So I was about to lay down, and right as I was laying down, I felt something grab me inside my body and then try to pull me out of it. And as I was doing it, <clears throat> um, I heard a voice. Hold on, let me get a drink of water. Um <clears throat> And the voice would whisper, you know, I want your body, that sort of thing. Only once, and then I remember seeing an image of a, of a tombstone as I was doing that. And I remember I was very big into um, watching Kung Fu and stuff like that, the the series Kung Fu. And so I was, um, it has a huge influence. It still has a huge influence on my spirituality because there's a lot of Taoism. Um, even though they were Buddhists, they still, they still have incorporated a lot of Taoist logic, uh, um, oppositional dualism, as, as we call it in philosophy. And um, so you kind of do things in the reverse. So I, I knew, like, you know what? I realized the more I feared, the stronger it got. So I did the reverse. I relaxed. And I embraced the experience. Not embraced and strengthened it, but just like, you know, doing the reverse. And I just surrounded myself with, I guess, um, not love of filia or eros, but sort of like an agape, just a, a deep understanding of what's, how things are, sort of on an intuitive level, and just kind of embraced it, and then it got weaker and it let go. And it, But I remember as if I was in a dark, it felt like if you could imagine being in darkness and something pulling you out of your body, that's what it felt like. And then um, uh, my dad had experience where he was shaving, his door was locked. He was in his boxes, and he said somebody slapped him in the butt. Uh, my mom was choked numerous times at her house. Um, oh, my God. I had, a, I had a sibling who was felt up. Um, <laughs> my, my, my friend Larry called, and he said, I think, a while back, he had my friends had some experiences where um, we actually saw something. My mom saw a ghost, um, an actual uh, apparition, and it was some German guy that she remembers back from... Europe wasn't too nice. Um, mm-hmm. Smelling of roses inside the house. Um, people tapping on on the window. I remember somebody hitting on the side of the house, um, and I would run to look. It just it just goes on and on and on. But especially the downstairs there. I mean, it really felt like in our house there was a battle going on, um, and it was just frightening. When you go downstairs, you could just feel that batter and people would visit our house and go downstairs and would say, this, your downstairs is spooky. Your house is spooky. I mean, one, I had one friend um, who was so spooked by our house that when he had to go to the bathroom, I had to go with him. So he didn't want to be alone because um, our house terrified. I mean, yeah, nothing happened to him, nothing. It's just, he says, there's something in your, he says, your house is spooky, you know, and then, um, I think one friend saw us when we were outside playing, he said he saw something in, in in the window once. So it just goes on and on. I mean, I'm trying to remember right off the head. So, I've, yeah, I I've grew up around that. And in between all that, I had, there was all this 
alien stuff that was kicking in. Um, but I guess my last experience was in, um, I have it written down here, was in January 25th, 2011. Um, no, 20, 22nd, sorry. Um, it was around 2 a.m., and um, my friend Larry was, was here visiting from Florida, and I was walking down the hall here at our house, and I felt like I walked through a mister. And, um, wow. And I, something's here, because his wife just passed away a few months before. Um, I think it was October of memory service. I don't remember the, I can't recollect the month at the moment. But um, So I, I did feel like she was here initially before he came, because I remember smelling cigarettes in the house, and she was a smoker. And I said, I smell cigarettes here. And um, she said, yeah, that's probably her. And um, me and her got on pretty well, and so I, I could see why she would come here to try to, I think she was trying to get in touch with Larry through me. And, um, well, anyway, I walked through this mist, and I told Larry, I go, something's here. And then I'd walk back, i go, there it is again. And But I wasn't wet. It felt, that's the interesting part, is I felt like I walked through a mist. Um, like, you know, when you when you go to, like, a botanical garden or whatever, and they have these misters or whatever, and um, you walk through mm-hmm. it. That's how it felt like, but, at the, but yet there wasn't any wetness to my skin or my clothes. And then um, that was it. And then I said, well, you walked through here. And I guess when he walked, he didn't feel anything. So I tried once again, and I didn't feel anything either. But I definitely felt as if there was a um, a, a presence. So it, I've had all these experiences all my life. And so our house, at that point, it seemed like a battleground. It's clean now. When I go there, when I visit my mom, um, we both agree there's, there's nothing there. It's like it's empty. And I remember, we, I think we both cleaned it out because I would meditate really hard, try to just empty it, just to clean it. Do I do my do my my own cleansing of, of whatever's going on in the house? And so um, I guess we won because <laughs> now when I go in there, I go, Mom, do you feel it? Because now there's nothing. It's like it's empty. There's nothing here. I'm like, good. Um, but Where was it did, This was. Um, was well, I don't want to get out the address, but this was in. Okay. That was that was in uh, this the city of Monrovia. Okay, Monrovia, and um, did they still own that house? I'm sorry? Are they still yeah, there? Yeah, the house is still there, yeah. Yeah, oh. and I go, I go visit my mom. She's still living there, so, but it's it's clean. Um, there's nothing there, but the whole time when we were growing up, um, since I was a little boy, it was just, <laughs> it was a mess. It was everybody had a story, and everybody, whoever would visit, it just says, there's something here. It, it, in your house, you know, we wouldn't even have to prompt them, especially the downstairs. But in general, people say there's something here, you know. And so was, I'd say there was more bad than good, but it did feel like a battleground because we did have some pranksters. Some you, did, you would feel mm-hmm. some stuff from time to time, but I don't know. I, I had I don't know if this like was. A, the, I think it is like a battleground. I think you're correct. That's what it you felt know, like, it, and um, it my mom and I agree. There's something as if there was a that battle going on, and then um, I just had enough. I'm like, I don't care what's going on, just leave. You know, that's, that was my mindset, and that's what I was trying to tell him. Now, just meditate, and I told my mom, we got to take care of this. And so I guess I'm assuming whatever we were doing um, must have must have helped because now there's nothing in there, and it feels really, really dead. <laughs> you know, well, it's like the house has no, no life in that, in that sense. So, yeah, I mean, I'm totally open to 
haunted things and weird stuff happening, giving what um, happened to me. Though the possession part, I that really, um, you know, hearing, you know, seeing a ghost or or hearing things knock, but something trying to possess you, that really, you know, wow, like that. That's why I'm open to something possessing somebody, given of what happened to me. It might happen, yes, because. I don't know if it was trying made. to kill me, but I, I'm, a, I'm interpreting it that it wanted to take me out and go inside me because it said it wanted my body, whatever it was. Wow. And so, yeah, and, you know, so as weird as it was, it's just like, okay, it happened. I remember I told, telling my friend, and it, I felt weird the next couple of days, but, you know, I had to go to school. <laughs> you know, I was a sophomore in high school. I know. Um, I think that's how You know what it's like after you get abducted or whatever. It's like you, you want to sit and think it because it's so bizarre, but these practice, uh, mundane things that are in our life, we have to deal with. You know, you have no choice. You have to go to work. You have to go to school. You know, after, no matter what bizarre thing happened, you can't say, you know, I'd like to, you know, can't call your teacher or your boss. You know, I can't come today because i got to really process what just happened to me. <laughs> People think you're crazy. And so that's wow. what's part okay, of so Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, so I found an article with Donna Anderson, and uh, she's talking about something she heard on Coast to Coast, and uh, it was uh, spooky South Coast. Uh, inside the Amityville Horror was Christopher Lutz. Now he's going by the last name of Q-U-A-R-A-T-I-N-N, Curatino, and uh, that uh, they're reporting, you know, that... Um, you know, 35 years ago, we were shocked to hear what happened at Amityville House and the flies in the window, the bubbling goo coming up from the plumbing, and the babysitter locked in the closet. Yeah, it was horrible. And the priest slapped and tormented by unseen spirit. And let's not forget the pig in the window. What made the book and the movie more frightening and the fact that they were based on a true story. We looked into the terror as uh, Margot Kidder uh, elevated, levitated and, and we watched James Brolin, someone and withdrawn, uh, it was screaming from the basement. Anyway, uh, how could something like this be happening right under our noses? Here's a family being terrorized by demonic forces right here in America. No one knew a thing about it. It was a stuff of horror movie, not real. But as it turned out, just a few months later, the whole thing was just that, a good scare horror movie. The events depicted in the Amityville Horror Book and movie weren't true at all. Then they were saying it wasn't true. Then, over the years, as more and more movies and documentaries were made, each more sensational than the last, we heard of George and Kathy's divorce, and we heard of Kathy's illness, and eventually even heard about the death, George's death, but we never heard from the Annieville kids. What happened to the children that survived this terror, or this fairy tale, whatever you want to call it? Did they really exist, or were they just phantom children? And then to make the story more scary. Anyway, one evening, she was listening to Coast to Coast AM, and she was surprised to hear that one of the callers identified himself as Christopher Lutz in a Vanneville. I was shocked to tell you the truth, as I assumed the whole Amityville thing it was a soap. And like everybody else on the planet, I never even considered the possibility of real life. I thought it was real. Anyway, that the live Lutz kids are out there somewhere. It turns out Christopher Lutz was pretty vocal in 2011 and videotaped the interview with Spooky South Coast, as he liked to say. Uh, Lutz says he was five years old when his mother divorced his biological father and about seven years old when she married George Lutz. They all moved to George's home temporarily while they were in the market for a larger place. And then they found the house at 11, you know, to Ocean. And I got, I, I got to go check that out someday. Anyway, 
so they found the house, and then Christopher Lowe said that people who call this a hoax often point to the mortgage on the house, saying that George and Kathy couldn't afford payments, so they made up this grand scheme to get out from under the burden. You know, I never even thought of that. Anyway, however, hmm. Chris says, Chris, they had no problems at all affording the mortgage. George's business was third-generation local land surveyor business, and he intended to set up his office in the house's basement, which would save him an office expenses. Plus, George owned two boats for which he currently paying docking fees, and he saved money there, too. So Cassie sold her house, and she and the children moved in with George, which gave them a substantial down payment for the house in Amityville. On top of that, they had the money they made selling George's house. They were by no means in trouble as far as money was concerned. Now, according to Christopher, there wouldn't have been a need to fabricate some elaborate scheme to get off money of the mortgage. Anyway, Chris Lutz said that a lot of the events reported in the book and depicted in the original movie never actually happened, but he blames it on George Lutz. Again, another kid blaming on George. Jay Anson, the author of the book, surprisingly, Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber. So Chris is blaming three people, George, his, his father, Jay Anson, the author of the book, and then uh, Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney, William Weber. According to Christopher, William Weber, I think this is, this is what Ed was referring to. Uh, according to Christopher, William Weber was an unpaid public defender appointed by Ronald DeFeo case. After George and Kathy got out of the house, it occurred to them that DeFeo might actually face the death penalty of the murders of his family members. They contacted William Weber to let him know what they would do, and they experienced an evil entity in the house. Perhaps DeFeo wasn't crazy after all. Would Weber get DeFeo some professional help? This is all Weber needed to hear Dollar Sign start dancing his eyes, according to Christopher. Weber originally presented a book deal to George and Kathy, but they turned it down because they saw that DeFeo was also included, making profit from the murders. Now, he wouldn't be able to do that nowadays. Instead, Weber hired a writer and, and published a watered-down version in Good Housekeeping magazine. Can you believe that? Of all places. I never saw it there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> when the Lutzens saw the article, they were upset and ended up connecting with Jay Anson, who agreed to tell their story. So that's when they signed the contract with Anson and then the book, and hence the movie was underway. Chris says at the time, George was the head of the household and handled all business transactions, which was normal for the time. Kathy took care of the house and kids. George would dictate the story to a tape recorder and send the tapes off to Anson, and Kathy had no involvement at all. In his interview with uh, South Coast, uh, Coast to Coast, uh, Christopher admits he doesn't know who to blame, George or Anson, but either way, the book was wrong. All he knows that was written in that book is not what really happened, and to this day, no one knows what really happened. Chris says the original book and movie earned the hoax label because there were so many events included and never actually happened. For example, he says no windows were shattered while they were in the house, since it's obvious to look at those windows now and see they've never been replaced. How do wow. you know that? Anyway, people automatically right. assume that every, everything in the movie and the book was a lie. Anyway, you know... Uh, That's because it didn't happen while he lived there. Yeah. Right. So they said that, uh, he said it was more unbelievable. Christopher says, no wonder people think the things were a hoax. However, he said things did happen that were even creepier than we saw in the movie. Now, this is the same thing that happened with uh, The Conjuring. Miss Perone, she said to me, it was worse in the movie. How could it be worse than what happened in The Conjuring? It was horrible. I don't know if you right. saw it. That girl almost had her back broke. She said, well, it was worse in real life. Yeah. So, okay. So he said, and Lutz says it's even creeping with the movie. In fact, it's still happening to him today. 
So he's still being haunted. And according to Chris, George Lutz was a dabbling occult, using transcendental meditation to conjure up spirits. During TM, most people chant a single word, and that word usually spirit will dance. I don't know. But George was chanting the names of demons, and not just a, a word. And he's asking demons to come into his house. So whether or not this remains true, but most means will tell you, meditation can open a doorway to anything, including demonic entities, inviting them into... I don't know. Medit- I guess it depends on your... Med- I don't know. i got to save that. Depends. Well, it depends how you're meditating. I can see because... Let's talk. When we talk about the Ouija board, when you're med, when you're doing the Ouija board, it's a form of meditation. Everybody gets in a certain mindset. They're doing things a certain way. So that's why I think, in my hypothesis, is it's not the Ouija board as such, or doing the Ouija boards as such. It's that mindset that you put yourself in, and you're doing it. Usually, when people do Ouija boards, they do it together with a bunch of other people. That's a lot of psychic energy coming together. That is. Now you and, and if you're all, you put yourself in a certain state, vibrational state, or psychic state. Um, then where you want to communicate or you're doing... So, I mean, it just depends why you're meditating. I mean, there's different forms of, of meditating. There's meditation and relaxing. There's meditation trying to connect to, yeah. um, you know, I you know think the ultimate reality. The there's meditation where you want to connect with the undead or dead or whatever. That's so just the, so when you're, when you're doing Ouija, you're trying to connect to, to, to people that are dead or spirits That's that are... True. Around, so I don't think I, I agree with you. It's not that meditation as such is not bad. It just depends how you're med- one is meditating. Okay, so now we have a caller, area code four one seven. You're live with the paranormal or sacred. Can I have your first name, please? Edwin. Hello, Edwin. Hello, Char. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying the now, show. And I, I'm agreeing <laughs> with a lot of what you're saying. But I wanted to give you some additional perspective because it's a perspective you that you won't get. Uh, Can I introduce you? Can if, I introduce you? Like. Okay, if, if this, you is, like. this is uh, Edwin Becker, and he is the author of. Uh, tell tell us about yourself. So you're you're an author. You've written many I, books, I, I, and you actually I, have one about a haunted house you you lived in. Yeah, no, I I write. I like to write a lot, but I wrote an original book. Uh, True Haunting, which is something my wife and I experienced back in 1970, something we never talked about for 40 years. And, in fact, uh, Stephen Lachance and I were recently talking, and he said that he felt that he exposed himself right away, and he's taking a beating for it. And I told him, I said, that's why I didn't say a word for 40 years, because people come after you. But I'll give you this perspective, and it's something that's rare. It's something that we're going through. Marsha and I, as you know, Cher, we've been on the radio a lot in the last three years. We've told our story many times, short version, long version. You can compare it all, and they're all going to be alike. I mean, uh, as we speak, it's very therapeutic, so sometimes we'll expose ourselves a little more emotionally than we could have done three years ago, let's say. But I can't mention names, I can't mention a company, I can't mention anything other than True Haunting is under option for a movie. Now, because we've been on the radio so much, and because we're our age, we're, I'm, approaching, I'm going to be 69, uh, the integrity of the story to me means everything. It's much yeah. the reason why my book was self-published, because one publisher looked at it, they wanted to embellish it, and I said no. You know, I'm not going to add a flying, flaming moose head uh, in the book. 
It didn't happen. <laughs> well, when you deal with a movie company, uh, you know, we found out with Paranormal Witness when we did the segment season two finale of The Tenants, uh, they pushed us a little bit, and they, they played scenes behind our words that weren't quite correct. So in dealing with a movie company and a movie contract, I, I decided I had to maintain the right of refusal. And uh, I had three different companies, and two of which, one of them it was very, very generous. But Marsha and I at our age, we're not going to change our lives. It's whatever we, we get is for our children. Uh, so, you know, their contract was basically they buy the property, uh, they make the movie, we get a percentage. Uh, they can do whatever they want with the story. And to me, that was just bullshit. You know, I just yeah. know you're not going to do that. We've told our story a hundred times on the radio. I wrote the story in a book. You can vary slightly. I mean, I expect you to, you know, to do what you got to do to add some box office. But no, you're not going to levitate me through the room, and you're not going to do, you know, crazy stuff that is untrue. Only one movie company agreed. They, they gave me the right to refusal, and we're we're working through screenplays now, where you know, this is insane. This didn't happen, and, and it's very very tough. When I, whenever I hear people discussing Amityville or discussing The Conjuring, and they're comparing the story to the movie, I laugh my ass off because there's no comparison in, in uh, what really happened and what Hollywood portrays. Uh, there just isn't. And and you know if you understand, there actually shouldn't be, because Hollywood wants box office. They don't give a crap about the true story, or it would become a documentary. Much like many of your publishers, uh, I've had a publisher look at my work the first time and they said, "That's way too lighthearted. It'll never sell a book." Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, since then, it's become a best-selling book for Author House. I've sold tens of thousands, uh, and yeah, it's option for a movie, and it, it's done it. It did exactly the opposite of what the publisher and I won't name who they are. They're they're idiots. Uh, they they had no they have no uh, intent on telling a true story. So whenever I see someone like uh, let's say Joni Moynihan, who has written a self-published ghost story, that's the story I like to read because I know that you know a, a publisher didn't dicker with it. Uh, right. You know, you'll notice that the Amityville book didn't come out two years before the movie. You know, it was coordinated. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, even your experience and, and all that. What is yeah, your it, it, the story? The stories are coordinated, and, and in the case of Marcia and I, they can't do that because our story is out there. It is what it is, and uh, so they got on. Now, if you read my book, there's plenty of room for uh, CGI. I mean, because yeah, we dealt with stuff that we couldn't see. So if they want to image that, what it could have been, yeah, it could probably scare the hell out of you. Probably would have scared the hell out of me as a young man. Uh, but that's just something I'll, t- I'll tell you that you know when you when people start talking about a movie, it's a movie. It, it's totally entertainment. It's much like when we did Paranormal Witness. They had to make good TV, and, and they did a uh, a season finale that broke all their records. Did a good job of it, even though it was you know a little bit off track. If you want to see what I'm talking about, uh, look up the tenants, season two. 
Yeah, excellent. Uh, I, I saw it. It's just uh, his first-hand experience. I, I really loved the questioning. I loved the way they were filming, and uh, you guys were uh, just telling your stories, but you weren't coordinating anything. But you both were saying the same things, right? Yeah, well, they they were laughing at us because I guess everybody else who does episodes, they're all there while each other is being interviewed. And uh, when I got interviewed, I told Marcia go shopping. So her and my daughter, and you know, I was interviewed for two, two a day and a half actually. And then when it came her turn to interview, they said, "Are you going to be there?" And I said, "No, you know I know the story." Uh, so she. she she was not president of mine. I wasn't president of hers. And then when Dan White was interviewed, neither of us were president of his. Uh, so they were kind of all amazed by that. They were, it was the first time they'd ever encountered that, where the, you know people weren't correcting each other or contradicting each other. I know your story was really extraordinary, and I've I've read that book. I've read uh, your other books too, and. Uh, it's one of the stories that it it wasn't sensational. You didn't sensationalize it or do anything. You were just telling your story, but what you were able to get across was that subtle creepiness that was creeping up. It was getting worse and worse, and I was looking over my shoulder. It freaked me out. That's the way I felt. I was getting scared, and, and just the book usually doesn't do that. Yeah, I mean, if if it was that scary... I mean, some of these things I see or hear about in books. I was a brave young man. I grew up in the streets of Chicago. I was afraid of nothing that that was solid. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, if something, a flaming skeleton or a flaming pig would have came flying through the air, we would have been out of there sleeping in the car. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> right. You, you know, you, you don't go back home and go to bed afterward. Uh, that You know, or... Let's say if you come into your apartment and the place is trashed, and uh, well, you know the first thing, what would you do, Shar? You call police. Oh, uh, please! <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame it on my wife's teddy bear or my wife's, you know, raggedy end doll. Uh, so certain things, you know, I, uh, what's frightening, I think, mostly about paranormal. You were talking about it, possession, and that is something I'm pretty familiar with. It does take hold of you very slowly. You mean about my sister? I'm sorry? What do you, what do you think about what happened to my sister? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know at all, I but I, I do and know she, that it takes a, a, slow, a slow toll on you. It starts yeah. with your attitude, and, and pretty soon you start to lose sleep and you start to feel weak and you start to feel sick and things become negative and then like I, I, my sister my sister all of a sudden became angry and mean mm. and uh, you know and almost you know sadistic and, and uh, wow yeah it, it yeah because but, there was a lot of problems after that but Ed to this moment you just said that about your sister I never just realized that's what happened to my sister I'm not gonna say which one because I have a lot of them, but this one, uh, it it took a negative turn, and anybody that she was with were terrible people. I mean, she meant some really wretched men, terrible that's guys. Exa- that's exactly the same road my sister went to. They they gravitate oh, yeah. toward each other, and 
they stay away from goodness or anything light. And uh, my sister led a very horrible life. Now, we had, on our show last week, we had a, uh, he's an exorcist, but he's also uh, a hypnotherapist, the Dr. Chuck Kennedy. Um, amazing man. But during the, the show, we only had one caller, and this woman called in. And Well, you know, Shar, we've only had the show since last January. Yeah. We probably had, we probably had uh, two, three hundred callers maybe since, in, in, since January. This woman called in, and she scared the hell out of all of us. Oh, God. And, and we really immediately knew, so just by the sound of her voice, this woman is in trouble. And uh, Dr. Kennedy took it offline, and he was going to help her directly. But you can oh tell when God. someone, when, when they're depressed or... What did she or, say? She just started, she, she said, number one, I want, I want help. Can you help me? And then she went on to talk about things that are happening in her life. And it was like the tone of her voice and the hopelessness yeah. was just so overwhelming that, I mean, Marcia, Jerry, and I were all texting each other, coordinating during the program, and it was like I, immediately I said, this woman's in real trouble. Marcia said, yeah, I can hear it. And we yeah. all knew right away. And uh, hopefully Dr. Kennedy will help her. Yeah, I, I just think that uh, I think that what uh, I've gotten a few very uh, wonderful comments just from random people just saying, you know, I've been aware that you're doing this, this, and you're really uh, keeping the word and the message out there. And uh, sometimes we're not aware of what we're doing. We're doing it and just trying to do the best job we can. And uh, it makes me aware that people need help, you know. And however it gets to them, however they get the word. It's good that we're talking about it. They should certainly be aware that how easy it is to happen yeah. in this culture. I mean, in, in this culture, uh, I don't believe the demons have to work that hard. You know, That's because there's, you've got so many people out there that are obsessed. I mean, I don't care if it's pornography or alcohol or... or Video games, they'll play them till they die, you know. Uh, all you got to do is have a demon push you over the edge and ride you, you know, till you die. What uh, are demons to you? What do they what come, de- yeah, in your, your opinion, your experience, what are demons? I, you know, I, you know, I guess if you go biblically, they're fallen angels. Uh, myself, I, I don't know. You know, I, I can't tell you where they originated. I would go with the Bible and say, yeah, they're probably fallen angels. But I do know they're very powerful. So, you know, being in the paranormal world, when I talk to an investigator and they say, I may have encountered something demonic, if he says I may, I know he didn't. Because the demons are very, very strong. They're very, very strong, and they only have one purpose. And that is they have no time, so they can take you and they can kill you. And they can take 50 years to do it. They can take 10 years to do it. Depends on their life. Yeah. I'm assuming you heard my description of what happened, occurred to me. Do you, Given your experience, do you believe that was a, a demon that was trying to get me or just a, another spirit? I'd say probably a demon. Hmm. 
Yeah, it came quick and fast at me <laughs> out of nowhere. Yeah, I'd say probably a demon testing and testing, you know, uh, how far they could penetrate your your and possess. Uh, but today, you know, you look at things. I mean, you, I I, uh, I wrote a book called Banished, and it's about uh, you'll never hear of a uh, when you read about exorcism books. The demon is always spewing pea soup and. and uh, throwing people through windows and things. I studied demonology, and I picked a demon of a certain personality that was interesting. And I matched him up with a priest that was not an exorcist because an exorcist would never exchange conversation with a demon. And this priest encounters the demon in prison. And it's a very interesting book. And uh, I recently got an email from a prison chaplain in California, a Catholic prison chaplain, who wrote me and said, you know, where the hell did you get all this information from? And it, I, I just studied demonology, and uh, when I meet a demonologist and he doesn't know the hierarchy of the demons in hell and how many legions they command, I mean, there are very, there are very simple simpleton demons that just do, you know, little negative things and trickery. And there's there are other, there's others that are very very violent. I mean, I would not want to be a prison chaplain. When I wrote this guy back, this Reverend Mulvey, I said, no, I would not be a prison chaplain, because he walks into the prison, he feels like he's surrounded by evil. You know, there's there's probably a legion of demons possessing. The, once once you have a, once they arrest somebody for cutting off you know the heads of 17 people or something, that's not human. That's right. not human nature. You, you know, once they arrest a man for killing his family and all his children, that's not human nature. But those people don't get a chance to be studied, actually, uh, by anybody of uh, of high credibility. Uh, they just get right. thrown in jail and contained. That's true. And you know that. Uh um, well, see, I read that book, and I remember I messaged you because, not that I'm going to say that name out loud and don't say it, but it had no, a won't. name, and I was terrified of the name, and it just struck terror in me. So I actually looked it up, and it is a real demon. And uh, before that, I knew they had names, but I didn't know there were specific categories. In particular, this one is particularly horrible. And yeah, no, uh, anyway, that book is also a great book and very informative. And that's why I asked you, did this happen to you? Are you the priest in the book? Remember, because it was very yeah. impressive to me. The, the way you write is just uh, it's like a cross between telling that story, but also like a true detective and also like, you know, it's just a mix. I really enjoy the way you write. I, I, the book was intended actually uh, to, to show people that demons just don't possess little girls. You know, no. that's for sure. Uh, they they can grab you, and and there's plenty of possessed people out there that you you pass every day on the street and don't recognize. Oh God, I, I know. You know. I kind of rec- I recognize them, but it's because I see something. I don't. I've asked yeah, other I, people. Let's say I see these people, and I ask people, "Do you? What does that person look like?" They all normal. I go, "But I don't see it. When I see them, I see something different." 
I see like they're covered in sweat or Vaseline, and that's what they look like to me. Kind of shiny, and some have a yellow eye. <laughs> no, if you, if you want to do a test, and I, I do this, I do this frequently. Uh, Marsha makes rosaries, and uh, she's made me a couple where I take a couple of the decades off, so they're not so lengthy, and I can wear it as a a pendant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll take a, I'll take one with the cross of Saint Benedict, and I'll wear it. Outside my shirt, where it's obvious and, and, and everybody can see it. And then what I do is I study the people before me. So if we're in a store, I'll study their faces, and I, I'll actually see people who will look at my chest. They will see that cross, and they will go in another direction. Wow! I believe you. You can try it. Put it on. Go someplace crowded, and watch what happens. And you well, will buy, you know, crosses, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Let's see what yeah, it, it won't. It won't true. be like uh, like 20 people are gonna go running the other other way. But if, no. if you watch closely, you'll see one person who'll they'll look at you. They'll look, for, and it'll be from a distance typically. Yeah. And they'll look at you again, and then they'll change directions. They'll go down another aisle. They'll avoid you. Wow. And it's out, they're out there. You know, you go to a casino, you can see them. You go to Go to like I, in the book I put. Go to McDonald's. You know, if you think that 500-pound guy downing hamburgers is hungry, you're crazy. You know, he's killing himself. Yeah, wow. he's killing himself. Well, thank you so much Ed, for calling in. You're just quite an author, quite a human being. And um, how's Marsh and how's everything? She's okay. Uh, we're getting a second opinion because her pulse is still up and down. She's wearing her pacemaker. Her and I now have matching pacemakers, you know. That's kind of cool. I know. Uh, it's cute. But she's okay, and she, uh, you know, we, we every day we're, we're here, it's a, it's a blessing from God, you know, good, bad, or otherwise. Yeah. So uh, we're very happy. Well, you guys and, are always in my prayers, and I really admire and love you, too. Well, thank you for letting me on the show, and uh, good evening, everybody. Anytime, anytime. It's a pleasure to meet you. God bless you. I catch them on Paranormal Angels. What's the site? Ad- Do you know the site's address, Ed? Well, he's gone. Anyway, it's called Paranormal Angels, and actually they're on Wednesday night, and I think it's 6 o'clock uh, Eastern time. They're in uh, Missouri, so is that Central time or Eastern time? In Missouri, um, it's definitely not our time zone. <laughs> no, so, but anyway, they have a show. It's called Paranormal Angels. So we even put Edwin Becker, Marcia Becker, Paranormal Angels, and they're on Wednesdays. And just uh, do the uh, you know when you go to www.blogtalkradio.com, uh, just put their names in there, and you can get their shows. And also listen to their archival shows because they have some wonderful things that they're sharing with everybody. And um, actually, we've got about eight minutes left, Adrian, and uh, I want to thank you so much for being my illustrious co-host tonight. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for... You know, and it turns it night into a lot of fun, because, you know, I was so, uh, feel like throwing the towel, and I'm sick of this, this last-minute stuff, and then it just turned out okay. You know, I think I remember, you know, I stopped being such a hothead. No, nah, so, I mean, I'm glad I was able to help out. And uh, things Thank happen you. sometimes, you know, guests come for whatever reasons. 
Yeah, that's cool. It's really nice hearing from everybody. I want to thank all the callers and the people in chat. And also, next week, have you heard of Daryl Sims or the Alien Hunters? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's going to be on. So oh, he's cool. a cool guy, and uh, that's gonna, we're going to be talking aliens. And uh, I don't know if you're free next Friday, but you're welcome to co-host with me if you okay. wish. And okay. then, um, you know, tonight it was really exciting. Just, I, I hope uh, Jackie Barrett feels better. Uh, she did a, she had a sudden and vicious migraine, and that's what happened. So go ahead and go to Amazon.com, and you'll find Jackie uh, uh, Barrett's book. She has uh, one called The Devil I Know, and it is about the Amityville Horror Case. And she also has another one that's about the Zodiac Killers. And uh, so go to Amazon.com, put in Jackie Barrett, and her books show up. And I wish her... Uh, great health and speedy recovery. And we also wish John Elias, can you believe this is going on with John? Did you hear what oh, happened? Oh, you mean John Elias? Yeah. Did you hear what I happened? I know. Yeah, he's on my support. I know. It's... Uh, what happened? I, I don't know the details. I just know that he well, ended okay, up on... Okay, so he did have surgery, but I think it was brain surgery. He got mm-hmm. pneumonia... And now he's on life support. And this is a young man. He has everything to live for, and we want him around. I mean, we were on all projects together, right? Yeah, things, um, when you're under, you're under the knife, things can happen. I mean, when I had my operations last year, um, things would happen. One, like one time um, on one of my operations, my lung unexpectedly collapsed. <laughs> I had to go in emergency yeah. mode to try to save me. <coughs> um, so you never know when you anesthesia, you know, getting surgery is just always a very dangerous sort of sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I hope he's going to, you know, wish him well. I hope he's doing okay. Um, no you know, being on my support, your body gets yeah, used to that really quick. That's not a good, you know, it's not a good thing. I, I, when I, one of my operations, they had to literally... Um, I guess Take maybe over I was, your breathing and everything. I would guess I was maybe technically dead. At least you know they had to they had to stop everything for about about an hour. Um, it was a five hour. One of my surgeries was about five hours, and um, for an hour of that, they had to shut my whole body down. And so um, that's really tough dealing with it because at least for me, I had a lot of problems um, after I was coming out of it. Um, my body really adapted to being shut down, so I, I had problems going to the bathroom. I had problems, all these problems, and I said, "What's going on?" So you, some people re- recover quickly. Other people, you know, shutting the body down is a dangerous thing because the body gets kind of used. To, your body got really used to being shut down. It doesn't doesn't want to come back, you know. And so, um, I hope, you know, I wish the best for John. We got to send him positive vibes. And yeah, hope, that's the because that's that's a dangerous point being at that point. That's not a good good thing. I, I hope he's strong and I hope he wants wants to come back, you know. But all we can do is, is hope and send positive vibes. That's right. And then and I thought so also with his family and he's such a high achiever and a striver and uh you know, he's constantly even talking up that week of him uh before he went to the hospital. Of, of more projects he's working on and everything else. So I, I know that he really, really, you know, had a lot of stuff going, and 
I hope he comes back. You know, it's just a scary thing to think about. And uh, I think that praying hurt works, you know. I think yes, it, I believe it does. Really helps because you were also, this time last year, I mentioned how sick you were, you were terribly ill and going through the same thing. But yeah, it was hard. terrible. I mean, I, I, I still deal with that, you know. And um, there's still, I'm still dealing with certain issues that I'd just rather not talk about in the air. But, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a long healing process, and um, it's a humbling process. <laughs> a good reminder of that one is not immortal, at least not, a, not in a physical sense. And so, um, yeah, I'm still dealing with the psychological aspect of, you know, because it's traumatic. It's really traumatic, and um, it's no fun. So I, I really feel for John, and I hope um, whatever path he goes, that it's going to be a, a peaceful one. If he comes back, I hope he comes back peacefully and not all traumatized. Yeah. But if he, if he goes, I would, I'd like him to go peacefully too. You know, I guess it's... I guess we have we, to keep all we can do is influence, mind. but ultimately the decision isn't ours. Exactly. It's, uh, I don't know, it's happening so much. You know what I mean? I know, isn't it? We have lost just... so many young people that it's totally unexpected. I know. Uh, I found out that he was getting a surgery, as, as you knew, but then when I found out, what? Life support? Oh, my gosh, you know? And so... It's scary. Uh, so... Just yeah, because it's, he's just so totally supportive of everybody else. Oh, he's totally a nice guy. He's really nice. He would tell me so many supportive things. He made me actually look at myself differently. Uh oh, there's a music cue. He's our cue. I was getting fed, but the landslide on. Mm. But anyway, yeah, we're at our last couple minutes, so. Um, I'll join you on uh, next week. Daryl Sims, I'll join well, you. Oh, awesome. Because we want to get into this alien hunters guy, and he's a cowboy with a black hat. Yeah, I've seen, uh, <laughs> seen him in the towel, uh, yeah. What? <coughs> okay. So, character. Um, I'm getting weird feedback. Can you hear that feedback? I hear music. Oh, you don't hear, you don't hear me talking to myself? I hear you talking, and I hear music in the background. Okay, that's all. Yeah. Okay, we're down to last minute, so everybody, thank you so much for, for being a co-host, Adrian. You're always exceptional. Thank you for everybody that called in. Everybody Thanks. patiently waited in chat, and all you good people that are my listeners, and I love you very much. And God bless you, uh, you and yours. And uh, we'll see you next week, same time, same station, with Daryl Sims from... The television show Alien Hunters. Good night, Adrian. And take okay. care of yourself. Okay, okay you too, Sean. Sure. happy for me. Okay, I shall. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> so follow the link to contact me if you leave a message you'd like to be part of our show or for general help and assistance. If you'd like to write me, you can actually snail mail me at Sean McCain, P.O. Box 980, for most of each California, now at 254. You know, as long as it isn't anything bad, it's something nice. So anyway, the paranormal and sacred is a place for the unheard may be heard. Please recommend us to your family and friends, and God bless you, everybody. May your best dreams come true, and true love live in your heart. And I also want to say to all of those that are hurting tonight and in recovery and trying to get over something, don't ever give up. 
never give up. That's all I can say. Get up tomorrow. Don't give up. Let's keep each other in our prayers. Love you. Good night. <laughs>